I maintain that we only need to destroy the idea of God in man. That's how we have to set to work. It's that that we must begin with. So says the devil to Ivan in Dostoevsky's masterpiece, The Brothers Karamazov. As soon as men have all of them denied God, the old conception of the universe will fall of itself. And what's more, the old morality. And everything will begin anew. Welcome back to Chiron, conversations about the past to help make sense of the present. I'm your host, Diff, and we're getting pretty close to the end of our investigation into the old lie, the satanic impulse, man's desire to be God. If you've been enjoying the series so far, please make sure you subscribe and give it a cheeky review. I am led to believe that it helps to spread the word. And if you've stumbled upon this and it's your first episode, can I suggest going back and starting with episode one? Each episode builds upon uh, those that have come before it. So it's going to make a lot more sense if you do go back and start at the beginning. But hey, I can't really control you, so do whatever you like. Today we're going to dive into some of my favorite books of all time. And this is going to be difficult, to be honest, because while I do want to talk about these books, I also want to, where possible, try to avoid any spoilers. In general, I think I'll probably be able to achieve this, but apologies in advance if I ruin anything for you. Maybe if you're worried about spoilers um, and you hear me talk about a book before, just just stop the podcast, go out and buy the book and read it. Uh, If you did that, that would be a way bigger win for me than you listening to the podcast. There have been some great works of classic literature that have tackled this topic that we've been talking about, humanity's desire to be God. To be honest, in some ways, all stories, or at least I would say most really great stories, probably have an element of this idea in them. See, when an individual obsesses over control, it probably has traces of the satanic impulse in it. And really, that's what so many stories are about, individuals obsessing over control. Certainly, if you think about it, characters as diverse as from Shakespeare's Macbeth to Voldemort from Harry Potter are grappling with the desire to surpass human limitations and the boundaries of objective morality. But today I just want to focus on a few and try to go deep enough into them to be effective without you personally having to have extensive personal knowledge of them. So it doesn't matter if you haven't read these stories, but I hope by the end that maybe you might be interested enough to pick up one or two of them. We're not going to begin with the brothers Karamazov, with the little excerpt that I started with, but rather with one of the coolest stories in literary history. And by that, I don't mean uh, in literature, I mean in the history of literature, because this story is about how a particular novel came to be. Once upon a time, not that long ago actually, in the year 1816, a young woman of only 18 years old found herself tripping around Europe with her lover, the poet Percy Shelley. And if you don't know any Shelley, check out his poem Ozymandias to experience what I think is one of the greatest short poems of all time. The year 1816 was called the year without a summer because the year before a volcano had erupted down in Indonesia and it had erupted with such force that the volcano itself was actually reduced in height by almost half. And still the following year, the effects of the eruption were being felt in Europe, thousands of kilometers away. And one of the effects was that the weather was so affected so intensely that it resulted in the death of livestock and crops and ultimately a major continent-wide famine. So it was under these dark and gloomy conditions of the year without a summer 
that Percy and his young lover were travelling Europe, and at one point they stopped in to visit one of Percy's poet friends, an incorrigible young rogue who called himself Lord Byron, who was a real ladies' man and was described by some as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Byron was staying with some friends, including his personal physician, Dr. John Polidori, in a villa by Lake Geneva in Switzerland. The weather was so miserable and cold that one day, Byron suggested that they all concoct a ghost story to share with each other. A few days later, after struggling for ideas, the young woman found herself unable to sleep, and in the middle of the night, she slowly became enraptured with this horrific idea that started to form in her mind. The idea of, as she put it, a pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing that he had put together. She said she saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavour to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. She arose the next morning and wrote the following words. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished flame, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. That young woman was Mary Shelley and that was the beginning of the writing of her book Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. And amazingly, and I think this is one of the really cool things about this story, one of history's other great monsters was born from this scary story competition, with the doctor, John Polidori, inspired to write a novel that was published in 1819 called The Vampire, the first modern vampire story written in English. Now, you probably noticed from what I quoted before from Mary Shelley that there is clearly the element of the satanic impulse in Frankenstein. Shelley recognises that supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavour to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. The satanic impulse is the desire to be God, and certainly this desire is represented in the attempt to create life, to break the bounds of nature. It's the mantra of the transhumanist FM 2030 that we should not die, and it's the words of the serpent to Eve in the garden. Frankenstein, though, you would have noticed, has a subtitle. It's called Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus. So we should quickly take a look at this story of Prometheus, an ancient Greek myth. Now, the thing about these myths, and particularly the ancient Greek myths, is that they're often told by a variety of different people. And so we've got multiple sources for them. And often these sources, they disagree a little bit on the content. So potentially the original story or the oldest story that we've got is probably from two poems by Hesiod, The Theogony and Works and Days. But then later, the playwright Aeschylus wrote Prometheus Unbound, which changed, added and removed elements from Hesiod's versions. So a short summary combining some of these is that Prometheus was a titan who was trusted by Zeus to some tasks pertaining to humanity. In most of the stories, he is responsible for stealing fire from the gods to give it to the humans. 
And this fire can be seen as being kind of symbolic or representative of technology, of wisdom and understanding. And in general, it's kind of seen as the civilizing force in humanity. In other versions, Prometheus is also responsible for the formation of humans out of clay. And for his disobedience, Prometheus's disobedience, he is captured by Zeus and he's chained to the side of Mount Elbrus, where each day an eagle would rip into his abdomen and devour his liver. And each night the liver would regrow in order to prolong his eternal torment. Until, of course, in some stories, he is rescued by a young demigod who's on his way up the mountain called Heracles, or who the Romans later called Hercules. So it should be pretty obvious then, I would imagine, why Mary Shelley chose the modern Prometheus as the subtitle to her book Frankenstein. Because this is exactly what the title character, Dr. Victor Frankenstein, does when he creates the monster. And I'm sure probably everybody listening to this is aware, but in case you're unaware, Frankenstein is not the monster, but rather the monster's creator. The, the monster that he creates is never actually named, which I think is a purposeful and powerful image of his lack of identity, which comes about from being rejected by his creator. That Prometheus is tormented for his hubris, which is a word which kind of means arrogance against the gods, the, a pride that's, that seeks to step over the gods' uh, limitations. And whether, that's, and whether that hubris is seen as giving humanity science and technology, or if it's the creation of life itself, this kind of torment that he's given is echoed in the torment of Victor. Honestly, there's so much in this story of Frankenstein that I'm never going to be able to do it justice here. So if you're going to read any of the books recommended in today's episode, I think Frankenstein is probably the top of my list. But in particular, what I want to focus on today is to draw out some key passages that speak to the desire to be God, as well as the inevitable despair and the monstrous results that come from pursuing the satanic impulse. Victor Frankenstein is spurred on, he starts on his quest to conquer death, from potentially or arguably even noble desires. See, he's dealing with the death of his mother, and at the same time he's reading these old works from alchemists such as Albertus Magnus, which bridge the worlds of science and magic. And he becomes obsessed with these ideas that he's reading in these old books. And this is how he explains it as he tells his story. No one can conceive the variety of feelings which bore me onwards like a hurricane in the first enthusiasm of success. Life and death appeared to me ideal bounds which I should first break through and pour a torrent of light into our dark world. A new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of his child so completely as I should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought that if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might, in process of time, although I now find it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. So you can hear in this short paragraph his desire to renew life to his mother. But he begins his experiments by bestowing animation, not life, interestingly, he doesn't use the word life, but animation upon lifeless matter. But you can also hear in here, mixed up with these potentially noble intentions, you know, he talks about the fact that he wants to pour a torrent of light into our dark world. 
but immediately there's this creeping hubris that reeks of the satanic impulse, because the very next thing that he says is, a new species would bless me as its creator. And soon this obsession consumes him so completely that it begins to ruin him. This is what he says. These thoughts supported my spirits while I pursued my undertaking with unremitting ardour. My cheek had grown pale with study, and my person had become emaciated with confinement. The moon gazed on my midnight labours, while with unrelaxed and breathless eagerness I pursued nature to her hiding places. Who shall conceive the horrors of my secret toil as I dabbled among the unhallowed damps of the grave or tortured the living animal to animate the lifeless clay. My limbs now tremble, and my eyes swim with the remembrance. But then a resistless and almost frantic impulse urged me forward. I seem to have lost all soul or sensation but for this one pursuit. I collected bones from charnel houses, and disturbed with profane fingers the tremendous secrets of the human frame. If it's not obvious here, I should point out, Frankenstein is digging up graves and robbing morgues of body parts to use to assemble his creature. He continues. In a solitary chamber, or rather cell, at the top of the house, and separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase, I kept my workshop of filthy creation. My eyeballs were starting from their sockets in attending to the details of my employment. The dissecting room and the slaughterhouse furnished many of my materials, and often did my human nature turn with loathing from my occupation. Whilst still urged on by an eagerness which perpetually increased, I brought my work to a near conclusion. It's such an interesting mix that he's talking about here, this mix of self-loathing, of recognising the desecrating and destructive nature of his enterprise, with this still this obsession for success. We see here that statement that I made in the last episode. You cannot break God's law. You can only break yourself against it. See, Victor is trying to break reality. He's trying to become a god. And in so doing, he's really only resulting in breaking himself. He is isolated, removed from society, from everything that makes him human. He's losing his humanity in his desire to surpass it. This is made clear as he reflects on his inability to enjoy the beauty of nature. The summer months passed, he says, while I was thus engaged, heart and soul in one pursuit. It was a most beautiful season. Never did the fields bestow a more plentiful harvest or the vines yield a more luxuriant vintage. But my eyes were insensible to the charms of nature. Nature has become his enemy, and in trying to conquer it, he can no longer see it accurately. Then, one dreary night of November, he beheld the accomplishment of his toils. The creature awakened. But instantly, Victor is filled with horror. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful, Beautiful, great God, his yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath, his hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes, that seemed almost of the same colour 
as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and his straight black lips. The monster reaches out to his creator, but Victor, horrified, turns and flees, running away and trying to forget the works of his hands. But the creature does not forget him. It pursues him, learning to speak and reason as it does so, and leaving a trail of murdered corpses behind it, until one of the book's great scenes, where the creature and its creator confront each other on a turbulent, windy, snow-covered mountain. This is their conversation. Devil, I exclaimed, do you dare approach me? And do you not fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked on your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect, or rather stay that I might trample you to dust. And oh, that I could with the extinction of your miserable existence restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. I expected this reception, said the demon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You purpose to kill me. How dare you sport thus with life? Victor responds, Abhorred monster, fiend that thou art, the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes. Wretched devil, you reproach me with your creation. Come on then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. At this point, Frankenstein tries to leap at the monster and attack it. But the monster is quicker, stronger, more agile than Frankenstein. Because that's exactly how Frankenstein made him. The monster then replies, Remember that I am thy creature. I ought to be thy Adam, but I am rather the fallen angel whom thou drivest from joy for no misdeed. Now this is a very interesting point to make, because the monster is drawing on an illusion from, of all things, Paradise Lost. You see, one of the ways that he learned to communicate was by educating himself by reading, there's three specific books that are uh, named, Plutarch's Lives, Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther, and Milton's Paradise Lost. All three of these play vital roles in his formation, but specifically it's Paradise Lost that shapes the monster's understanding of himself and his creator. While confronting Victor on the mountain, the monster explains this experience. Paradise Lost excited different and far deeper emotions. It moved every feeling of wonder and awe that the picture of an omnipotent god warring with his creatures was capable of exciting. I often referred the several situations as their similarity struck me to my own. Like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other being in existence, but his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous, guarded by the especial care of his creator. He was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature. But I was wretched, helpless, and alone. Many times I considered Satan as the fitter emblem of my condition, for often, like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. The story continues, and the monster's sympathy for and similarity with Satan increases as he descends into a pit of despairing, envious rage, driven by his lust for revenge on his creator. He explains it like this. 
Impotent envy and bitter indignation filled me with an insatiable thirst for vengeance. I recollected my threat and resolved that it should be accomplished. I knew that I was preparing for myself a deadly torture, but I was the slave, not the master, of an impulse which I detested yet could not disobey. I had cast off all feeling, subdued all anguish, to riot in the excess of my despair. Evil thenceforth became my good. Urged thus far, I had no choice but to adapt my nature to an element which I had willingly chosen. The completion of my demoniacal design became an insatiable passion. You can hear in here the continual references back to Milton's Satan. For one, the monster actually quotes a line from Paradise Lost, which we've mentioned here in the podcast before. Evil be thou my good. The monster says the same thing. Evil thenceforth became my good. But it's more than just that. See, the monster does exactly what Satan does throughout Paradise Lost as well. He always acknowledges his despair and his torment. He realizes that he was preparing for himself a deadly torture, but he resolved to do it anyway. Why? Because he had become a slave, not free, but enslaved by the satanic impulse that had overcome him. However, we should recognize at this point that in many ways, the monster is not guilty of a satanic impulse, at least not at first. He becomes guilty, but that's not how he starts. Rather, he can be seen as the work, the, uh, the result or the progeny of the impulse at work in Victor. He's almost, we could say, the satanic impulse personified doomed for slavery and despair because he was born from a man's effort to become God. And there's a reason that I think that the monster remains unnamed, as I said before, because I think it's possible to read the book as the monster representing a physical manifestation of the satanic impulse. This is what man's desire to be God looks like and does. It's monstrous. It's, it's hideous, disgusting and powerful, far more powerful than the humans that create it and then succumb to it. It has the appearance and holds the promise of power and beauty, but as soon as it is realized, it becomes hideous, and the power once pursued is ultimately turned against humanity itself. And this despair and death is inescapable. It pursues those who unleash it in the world, destroying everything that they hold dear. Victor's moments of isolation in his laboratory are the prefiguring, the foreshadowing, you could say, of the isolation that will continue to pursue him as one by one the result of his hubris, the manifestation of his satanic impulse, the monster that he creates, kills each person that he holds dear before it finally comes for him. You cannot participate in the unholy bargain of the satanic impulse without unleashing the inescapable despair that accompanies it. And this story of Frankenstein's monster holds a striking similarity to a, another literary monster who makes a similar deal for power. However, this character does not create a monster. Rather, he becomes the monster. J.R.R. Tolkien's stories from Middle-earth, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, contain the tale of Smeagol, who is a hobbit-like creature, basically a little kind of man. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess that, unlike Frankenstein, many more listeners to this podcast will be familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings. 
So I won't go into as much detail here. But what we see in Smeagol, who later becomes the creature Gollum, certainly has a Frankensteinian element to it. You'll remember that Smeagol becomes obsessed with the One Ring, to which he becomes enslaved. It gives him power, but ultimately, it has power over him. One of the things it does is give him a false immortality. He has the capacity, granted by the ring, to continue living, to extend his life far past its usual amount of time. Basically, to live forever, which is very similar to those desires of the transhumanists of the NICE in Lewis's That Hideous Strength. But this, similar to the immortality expressed in That Hideous Strength, this immortality of Smeagol is not one that anyone would choose if they had the choice. It's nothing like the true and beautiful immortality of the elves living in harmony with nature. Rather, it's an immortality that comes as the result of rejecting nature, of forcing technology, which is represented by the ring, over nature. Immortal, yes, but an immortal horror. Interestingly, there is a possibility, though we don't know for sure, that the new creature that Smeagol becomes, which is named Gollum, is named after the old Hebrew concept of the golem, which comes from Hebrew words that roughly translate to raw form or unformed substance. The mythology of the golem is that it's a creature without a soul, created kind of similar to Adam, out of dust and clay, but without the Imago Dei, lacking that which comes from being made in the image of God. Like Frankenstein's monster, it is an animation bestowed upon lifeless matter. And so we see the person Smeagol, through a compulsive obsession with the ring, slowly being unmade, becoming an unman, raw material, losing his self in his slavery to the false promises of power and immortality that the technology of the ring whispers to him. These whispers come in the form of a kind of insanity, where Smeagol speaks to himself, to the golem part of him, which expresses the dark desires for the ring, his precious. Such a similar one-sided conversation is perhaps what is taking place when, in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov, one of the three brothers, the atheist Ivan, experiences the presence of an unknown gentleman in his room at night, who reveals himself as being the devil. One of the major themes running throughout the book is the idea that once humanity has disconnected itself from God, all things are permissible. As the devil says to Ivan, as soon as men have all of them denied God, the old conception of the universe will fall of itself, and what's more, the old morality, and everything will begin anew. And this is exactly the step that's needed for the regressive progress represented by Frankenstein, Gollum, the members of the NICE, and transhumanists such as FM2030 to take place. I'm calling it regressive progress because it looks like progress, but it actually only serves to dehumanize those that pursue it. Humanity regressing backwards to raw, animated matter in its attempt to progress to become God. The devil continues his monologue with Ivan. Man will be lifted up with a spirit of divine titanic pride. So interesting that he uses the word titanic here, and actually capitalizes it as well, speaking back to the pride of the titans, 
of which you'll remember Prometheus was one. Man will be lifted up with a spirit of divine titanic pride, and the man-god will appear. From hour to hour, extending his conquest of nature infinitely by his will and his science, man will feel such lofty joy from hour to hour in doing it, that it will make up for all his old dreams of the joys of heaven. But, as owing to man's inveterate stupidity this cannot come about for at least a thousand years, everyone who recognises the truth even now may legitimately order his life as he pleases, on the new principles. In that sense, all things are lawful for him. What's more, even if this period never comes to pass, since there is anyway no God and no immortality, the new man may well become the man-god, even if he is the only one in the whole world, and promoted to his new position he may light-heartedly overstep all the barriers of the old morality of the old slave man, if necessary. Now, if this rings a bell to the Nietzschean ideas of slave morality, it should. Nietzsche once said of Dostoevsky that he was the only person who has ever taught me anything about psychology. And it's probably worth pointing out, though, at this point, uh, of course, uh, that these were the words of the devil, so maybe not to be taken as words of sound advice, as it seems Nietzsche perhaps maybe did. But there are actually some really strange and sometimes quite confusing parallels between the ideas that are expressed by some of Dostoevsky's characters and, and, and little episodes that happen in his stories and the actual life of Nietzsche. For example, in the novel Crime and Punishment, the main character Raskolnikov has a dream in which he witnesses a horse being beaten to death by its owner. In the dream, he is a young child again and he sees a drunk man surrounded by a bunch of other drunk men all cheering him on as he beats a horse and eventually actually to death, crying out all of the time, I can do what I want with it, it's my own property. 20 years after the publication of Crime and Punishment, on January 3rd, 1889, Nietzsche is said to have had almost exactly the same experience that Raskolnikov dreamed in Dostoevsky's novel. Nietzsche was walking the streets of Turin and saw a horse being viciously whipped by the driver of a chariot. He ran to the animal and threw his arms around its neck in the attempt to protect it from the beating. And it's said that directly after that, Nietzsche collapsed into tears and that this episode marks the beginning point of his 11-year descent into madness. For Raskolnikov, the character in Crime and Punishment, it did something very similar. For a few days after this dream, he woke up, stashed an axe into his trench coat, walked across the city of St. Petersburg, knocked on the door of an old lady, walked into her apartment, and killed her with the axe. It's a brutal start to an incredible book, and for the sake of this conversation, what we're going to talk about is his motivation, because that's what really matters. You remember that the devil says to Ivan, the new man may well become the man-god even if he is the only one in the whole world, and promoted to his new position, he may light-heartedly overstep all the barriers of the old morality of the old slave man if necessary. And this is exactly what Raskolnikov believes himself to be, and, as he puts it, extraordinary person. For a while leading up to this, he's been considering a thought experiment very similar to those ideas expressed by Ivan's devil. He writes an article about it at one point, in which he suggests that all men are divided into ordinary and extraordinary. Ordinary men have to live in submission, 
have no right to transgress the law because they are ordinary. But extraordinary men have a right to commit any crime and to transgress the law in any way just because they are extraordinary. A man of this kind has a right, not an official right, but an inner right, to decide in his own conscience to overstep certain obstacles, and only in case it is essential for the practical fulfilment of his idea, sometimes perhaps, of benefit to the whole of humanity. And as Raskolnikov is toying around with this idea, he wonders whether it can be extended to the killing of an individual, a person who is only a drain on society, who brings no good to the world and therefore does not deserve to live. The very day after his dream of the horse, he happens to be in a bar and he overhears a conversation between a student and an officer who are discussing the very same thing, in fact about the very same woman that he had been thinking about killing, a pawnbroker called Aliona Ivanovna. Well, listen then, says the student to the officer. On the other side, fresh young lives thrown away for want of help, and by thousands on every side. A hundred thousand good deeds could be done and helped on that old woman's money which will be buried in a monastery. Hundreds, thousands perhaps, might be set on the right path. Dozens of families saved from destitution, from ruin, from vice, and all with her money. Kill her, take her money, and with the help of it devote oneself to the service of humanity and the good of all. What do you think? Would not one tiny crime be wiped out by thousands of good deeds? For one life thousands would be saved from corruption and decay. One death and a hundred lives in exchange. It's simple arithmetic. Besides, what value has the life of that sickly, stupid, ill-natured old woman in the balance of existence? No more than the life of a louse of a beetle, less in fact because the old woman is doing harm. Of course she does not deserve to live, remarked the officer, but there it is, it's nature. Ah, oh, well, brother, replied the student, but we have to correct and direct nature, and but for that we should drown in an ocean of prejudice, but for that there would never have been a single great man. And this is enough for Raskolnikov, he sees in it something preordained, because he thinks of himself as one of these great men. So he sees it as a guiding hint, as if the universe was forcing him into action. So he goes on to kill the woman, along with her sister, who happens to be in the apartment as well. And all of this actually happens in the first 10% of the book, or roughly. So with the murder happening so early, what is the rest of the book about? Well, it's called Crime and Punishment because that is exactly what it's about. Not just the crime, but the punishment. Raskolnikov is, from this point on, pursued relentlessly by his conscience. He discovers that he is not one of those extraordinary men. He experiences the punishment of his crime in a way very similar to the contrapasso that we saw detailed in Dante's Inferno. The crime is, in fact, its own punishment as he descends into a fevered panic. Like Frankenstein, he is pursued by the monster created from his desire to become a god-man. And like Smeagol, the monster is himself. The student and the officer speaking in the bar, you will have noticed, conclude with this interesting statement. We have to correct and direct nature. And again, the echo of transhumanism reverberates. Nature itself seems wrong to the ubermensch. It must be directed and corrected.
And how do we do this? Through human power, the power of human reason that manifests in technology. It's an interesting parallel that in both Frankenstein's monster and in Tolkien's Smeagol, it is technology that creates them. Unbridled science, disconnected from metaphysics and ethics, separated from the natural order and hierarchy of the world, has no reason to stop at anything in its pursuit of more power. Power which is at first determined to help people overcome nature, becomes power over people through technology, but very quickly that same technology soon asserts its power over us, and we become enslaved. It's a comment many have made in recent years, for example, about their relationship with their mobile phone. And so we see that those ideas that used to remain only ideas, dreams of becoming gods, are seeming to become more possible through the power of technology. So how should we think about technology and science? What are their right places in the hierarchy of God's natural order? This will be the focus of our next episode, all about scientism and power. Next time on Chiron, conversations about the past to help make sense of the present.